God didn't make us to um, follow Jesus in someone else's sin-stained culture. Like he didn't, he didn't create us to, to, to erase ourselves of our own culture to take on someone else's sin-stained culture, which is the American culture. Um, and not very, not many people really think about how pervasive the American culture is, or even just the effects of colonialism and everything. Like people, people don't think about how pervasive it is to our everyday lives. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest is Renee Begay. Renee is a Nations National Director. Nations is cruise ministry to Native Americans. Enjoy the show. Renee, the first time I remember you is five years ago at our biannual crew staff conference Mm -hmm. in Colorado. (laughs) You're smiling, so I know that you know what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) I actually know the exact date that I became aware of you as a human being. It was July 18th. 2013. And I know that because I posted about it on Mm -hmm. Instagram. It made such a mark on me. (laughs) You got up on stage and you read a poem. And I had worked for crew for 10 years at that point, Mm -hmm. and I'd never experienced anything like that. (laughs) Can you tell us how you ended up on that stage Mm -hmm. talking about the deep red mesas of the desert and the smell of clay and juniper after rainstorms. Um, how I came to that poem? Sure, or how you how you came? Yeah, you could tell us how you came to the poem and how the poem ca- you came to be on stage sharing that poem with us. Okay, and all, thousands of staff. Okay. Um, I don't I don't remember who the person was that approached me and asked me um, to speak at at the staff conference. Um, it seems like a blur because when I was invited to speak, I was kind of shocked and excited, but then also really nervous about um, kind of how to share my story. Um, and I think it was in the framework of like that you have, because I was going to speak alongside other two other speakers. And so it was almost like a TED style talk. And so they said, it's just going to, you're just going to have like 20 minutes, I think. And then, then we'll move to the next person to speak and stuff. And so, um, I think formulating the talk and stuff was, um, went well, but the part where I was kind of caught up was, um, it was like, I don't, I didn't want to just end with a prayer, um, that it's, you know, like how it's normally done after you speak, you say, I'm going to pray in this. But I was like, I really want to push the envelope of how we can start, um, engaging one another. And I remember thinking about this poem that I learned about in college where I took a multicultural education class and, that was one of our assignments was to do an I am from poem. And I remember getting to share mine and then listening to others um, in my classroom share theirs. And it was just so powerful um, to listen to everybody else's stories and then to be able to share mine. And so I thought, how can I fit that in? 
But then at that moment, I was like, this sounds really corny <laughs> to be able to... When you were on stage? Just, I don't know why. I just, I kind of like second guess myself a lot, but like, I just thought this is so corny. Like, it's so cheesy, like come going up there and saying like, I am from, you know, all this stuff. But um, it wasn't though. It was so incredibly moving. <laughs> I'm glad I stuck with it because um, I... I told Donnie about the idea and he was very encouraging and said, yeah, do that. And then um, I was also meeting with our mentor at that time too, which was Mark Charles. And I told him about the idea of sharing the I am from poem. And he was actually excited saying, you know, you should do that because it gives people a different way to um, view story. Um, it it gives people a chance to relate to one another by where they come from versus who they are. Because when you introduce yourself, it's mostly, my name is this and this is what I do. So instead of kind of moving away from that, that way of doing, um, you kind of move toward like who I am and being, I guess. And so, so he really encouraged me to kind of stick with it and share that poem. And so... Um, that's kind of how it, um, how it all started. I almost got X'd. Like I almost, I was like, this is too cheesy and corny for me. But then, you know, I'm glad I did because it, it really, um, it really proved to be powerful. It felt so honest, so vulnerable and authentic. Now you can't remember exactly how you ended up on stage at our staff conference, but how did you become aware of crew or get involved in the first place? Um, so I became, um, I started following Jesus, um, my sophomore year of high school and my high school counselor was the, the guy that kind of, um, listened to what I was going through, prayed for me, shared Bible stories with me. Um, but was really patient with me um, just by nurturing, I guess, kind of the questioning, questioning that I had and um, answering the questions that I had. And um, when I decided to follow Jesus, um, he kind of helped me build my faith and stuff. But um, my sophomore year of high school, um, he was encouraging all the students to go to college. And at the time, I didn't really think I was going to go to college. I mean, I thought about it. I mean, I was a good student and stuff, but that really wasn't something that I was um, passionately pursuing. I just figured I would probably just go home, take a year off and think about it. But he he really encouraged me to go to college and said, if anything, um, if anything, sign up to go to New Mexico State University because they have this amazing Christian organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. That's what it was called before the name change. And he said, my sons, my two sons go to school there and they are really growing in their faith. And um, so he was just really amazed at his son's growth and encouraged me to sign up to go to New Mexico State for that reason alone, if, if I didn't have any other reason to go. And um, I had got, gotten recruited by another university to run for them um, cross-country. And mm. it was in Oklahoma, Bacon College. And I, w- I chickened out. I got too scared. I was just 
scared for my safety and kind of going away from home for the first time. And so I chickened out. And where's with, home? Oh, in Zuni, Zuni, New Mexico. Um, so that oh, was probably about 50 miles away from the high school that I went to. So I commuted. I got picked up by the bus so, at 5.30 a.m. every morning and then oh my um, gosh, picked up the town kids and then got dropped off at the Rehoboth Christian School. And then, yeah. But then my my sophomore to senior year, I stayed at the boarding school, like the the um, the building that they had for boarding. So, so Zuni is a town, but Zuni is your tribe, right? Yeah, yeah. Zuni is the village, the tribe that I come from. Yeah, it's a village. Okay, can you tell us more about Zuni? What What's it like to be a part of the Zuni, sorry, clan? I keep wanting to say clan, but is it, how, how would you say um, it? The Zuni people? Yeah, the Zuni people. Um, so the tribe is called Zuni, Zuni Pueblo. Um, the language we speak is Zuni. Um, what else? Um, but in our language, we call ourselves Ashiwi. That's, um, it kind of just translates as like us, like that's us, you know, the people. Um, and there's, I think the last I checked, the population was about 12,000, um, Zuni tribal members and about mm, 80% of our tribe is self-employed, which means that we have a huge artist population. So if you're familiar with all the Zuni jewelry, like the, the petty point turquoise jewelry, um, fetishes, pottery, all those things. Um, we have a large artistic population. And um, what was it like growing in Zuni? It was, I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. But like I grew up in a trailer with my my grandparents, um, my mom, my uncle, um, and his family, and my my aunt. And so um, it's kind of just, it was one big, um, one big family living under the roof and uh, just enjoying life. I, I grew up following the Zuni way of life, the Zuni religion, um, and I was really proud of it. I was proud of who I was. I was, I was proud of my heritage and the things that were taught to me um, and and it's like the Zuni way of life was just ingrained into every every part of your life for every day. And so <clears throat> so I just I I remember just being, you know, really proud of who I was. Um I mean and the, but then like the my life wasn't um absent from you know like hardships and stuff. My mom was a single mom. Um and so she raised me um, with the help of my grandparents and the rest of the family. Um, I went to a Catholic school for kindergarten through eighth grade. And then um, the Christian school, the Christian private school for my high school. So my mom really did, um, you know, did as much as she could to like put me in good schooling. So, mm -hmm. uh so yeah, just growing up uh, with cousins, playing, playing outside a lot, being outside a lot, um, riding bikes, um, 
playing with dirt, <laughs> all those things. <laughs> so, yeah, I enjoyed Can it. you tell us more about the Zuni way of life mm-hmm. that you were so proud of? Mm-hmm. What Was there a spiritual aspect to that? Was it a worldview? Was it just your values? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual um, life and... You know, I, at the beginning of um, following Jesus, like I was, you know, it was almost this equivalent of like burning your CDs. Like when I, when I started following Jesus, I completely shunned everything that was Zuni to me. And um, I stopped, you know, taking part in the religious activities. I... And then even the cultural stuff, things that were cultural, like I just completely cut myself off from. And and at that moment, like I just was really young and trying to figure out my faith. What did it mean to be Christian and Zuni at the same time? And so for me, I went on that whole pendulum extreme swing of like, I'm going to I'm going to cut off everything that's Zuni and just concentrate on being a Christian. You know, looking back now not knowing that like I was actually taking on someone else's culture, sin stained culture <laughs> and hmm. um, claiming that as my own. And so I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit just really kind of um, nurtured me into letting me know that like I'm Zuni and this is who I am. It's my identity and the cultural parts about me is what makes me who I am. And so I can embrace those things. And so I've kind of just along those years have just slowly been brought back by the Holy Spirit's leading to just be okay. I can I can still be proud of who I am being Zuni, um, but then I can also do it respectfully um, for my family that's still part of the Zuni religion. That I can, you know, that I can speak respectfully of the religion and and um, even though I don't follow it, like I'm still respectful of that and that I. Um, you know, that the way I speak or the way I carry myself is still a reflection of where I come from. And so, um, so that's kind of just how I've, I've seen my journey in following Christ, um, and having him remind me that being Zuni is part of who I am. And that's like that he intended to make me that way. And, that there's so much that I bring to the table as far as um, the story that I bring with me and to kind of help usher in all those other tribes, tons, and nations that that are kind of coming up to the Lord's table too to do the same. So, What did you mean when you... Did you say sin-stain culture? Yeah, it's a... What is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a... It's a term that Richard Twist, the late Richard Twist, um, has used where um, he talks about, you know, Native people have been evangelized to for 500 plus years and it hasn't um, gone so well (laughs) because out of those 500 plus years of being evangelized to only only 3% of Native people's claim to uh, follow Jesus. And so if you think of those numbers in terms of hundreds of years, you're just like, whoa, um, Christian mission hasn't done so well in evangelizing to the native population. And so um, part of the th- 
part of the discussion that Richard Twist talks about when he says um, that that God didn't make us to um, follow Jesus in someone else's sin-stained culture. Like he didn't he didn't create us to 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 erase ourselves of our own culture to take on someone else's sin-stained culture, which is the American culture. Um, and not very, not many people really think about how pervasive the American culture is, or even just the effects of colonialism and everything. Like people, people don't think about how pervasive it is to our everyday lives. And so, so that's why I say, like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't made to take on someone else's sin-stained culture. Um, and and so that's kind of how I came to like understanding that that. God made me who I am as Zuni to represent him and glorify him in all of the fullness of my identity. And so I'm constantly on that journey of learning what that means, learning from my elders, from my people um, to understand what that means to be Zuni. So, and then teaching my girls the same thing. (laughs) So I wonder if you've heard of this book. I think it's by, I think his name is... Don Richardson. If it's not, I'll just change, correct it in the show notes, everyone. But he wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts, and it's actually about, do you remember that one? Yeah, I remember reading it in college, yeah. It's about mission work and basically missionary stories of how missionaries took the gospel different places and whatever the people, the indigenous people there were already believing or mm-hmm. following or was part of their spiritual life was somehow preparing them for the gospel. Mm-hmm. So it was these incredible stories. I remember one, I can't remember where it was from, but it was these people, when the missionaries came, they they said to them, do you have the book? We've been waiting for the book. Oh yeah. And it was this kind of incredible thing where God had set them up to be waiting for a book. And then these missionaries came and they brought the Bible Mm-hmm. Anyway, I wanted I I think I just want to hear from you what what were things about the Zuni way of life and your spiritual life before you were following Jesus that set you up for the gospel? Have you thought about that? Oh yeah, I've um when I read that book I could see um you know there there're these testimonials of where God has shown up before the missionaries showed up. Um, and prepared these people to receive the good news. And um, personally, in my story, in Zuni, they have the art in our creation story, we have a flood story. And so that's just, you know, that's one example of, you know, Jesus showing himself before anybody else came into contact with us. Um, we have we have a flood story and we have a story of how um, there was sacrifice being made so that the rest of the village could be saved, and so there's all these all these stories that are told to us, where I do see examples of of God Creator showing Himself to us, and um, and even in a um, you know I saw a lot of examples personally in just the religious practices where, and I'm not going to talk about them, but like just examples of where it was 
as I observed them, I was like, this is the gospel. <laughs> this hmm. is the gospel being lived out among our people. And, um, and so that gives me encouragement to know that Creator has already shown Himself to us before any other contact. And so that's kind of the theme that we share with our students when we take them on summer mission, is that there's this whole mythology of American history where it says that, you know, um, these natives are frozen in time, like that there's, they're kind of like the other they're they're the savages they're the ones that need to be civilized they're the ones that need to have the gospel shared to them and um and they need the gospel so almost like this other mentality throughout american history and what we tell our students when we take them on summer mission is that actually god showed up before we even did way before you know Missionaries were even missionaries. Um, creator showed himself to creation and to these indigenous people groups, and they have stories. And our job is to come be invited onto the land and to listen and observe the indigenous, indigenous people's way of life and be very um, sensitive to how Creator has shown himself to them. And when they do trust us enough to share their stories with us, then we have to listen and praise God for how he's shown himself to them. And so in Cake, Alaska, when we went to visit the the Tlingit people, um, when we finally met with the elders, um, they would tell us stories of how, how Creator had shown himself and how he had um, given them stories of how Jesus would be coming to them. And so they were expectant of, of these things that would come to fruition, like come to, come to pass and stuff. And so it's really cool how when you kind of shift your thinking from that, from thinking that, that natives are the other, natives are, you know, savages and all that stuff. And, and that's rooted all the way back to the Greeks. Um, there's this book called Savage Anxieties. Hmm. Um, the author is um, Dr. Robert Williams. I think that's his name, but um, it's a pretty hefty book. But like it, it just it really um, confirmed in me that there's this there's this whole kind of sentiment of like that natives are the other, they're the savages throughout all history. That they're they're kind of like the enemy that they need to be erased. Um, there's this Indian problem to remove them. We need to remove them. We need to, we need to transfer them to another piece of land. And then, but then when we need their land, we're gonna take it. And there's gonna be different ways to try to assimilate them to kind of erase their identity. And so, um, so it's pretty heavy. But like I, these are kind of some of the things that we've, um, form are not formulated, but kind of gathered, and try to to aid us in helping bring future evangelists, you know, in a, in a, in a posture of just cultural sensitivity to know that these there's, there's, we're constantly taking college students to different places on mission and we're giving them the vision of, you know, all tribes, tons and nations, but we have to really do the hard work of helping them unlearn a lot of the things that they've carried from school or things like that, that they've learned and then relearn some of these things that um, 
really glorify God. So, I love how you refer to God as creator. Mm-hmm. And I saw on your Facebook while someone else was talking about creator, and then they also mentioned creator sets free, and mm-hmm. I think Jesus was in parentheses. So mm-hmm. were those names for God that, were those Zuni names for God? Uh, not Zuni names, but um, there is a, um, this family, they're called the Wildmans, and I think he um, presented at the staff conference one year, Terry Wildman and his wife, I've, um, I have to look it up, but the Wildmans, they are... Uh, translating the Bible into a First Nations version, and then that's that's where it came from. Is Creator sets free? That's the name that they had um, assigned to Jesus. And you know, in the Bible, like God is called by many other names, like the Alpha and the Omega, and God Most High, and all those things. And so, um, so his his First Nations version, like he he does that that work, the good work of just translating that in the native worldview. So, And so they're writing that book right now, the First Nations Bible? Yeah, I think it's, um, I know that there's an Ephesians version, there's a New Testament version. And so he's, he's working to translate, um, I don't know if it's the whole Bible, but like the, there's, there's new, um, new versions that he, or yeah, new versions that he comes out with. So I want to go back to what you were saying about the way that natives have been tried that that colonizers have tried to erase mm-hmm. natives. Um, and I saw on October eighth, it was Indigenous Peoples Day, mm-hmm. and I saw a lot of people posting about it on social media. This was the first I've ever heard of it. Yeah, and. Um, I saw you post on Facebook that you were reading Violence in the Land by Ned Blackhawk to Mm -hmm. learn more about your own New Mexico history. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what you've been learning from that book? And Yeah, it was really eye-opening just to... um, I mean, and this is just one book about um, the history of the Great Basin area, which is like the Colorado, northern New Mexico area. and there's there's a lot of like history and facts about what life was like in the 1600s, 1700s, and stuff. And um, but just what kind of rose to the surface for me was that um, I always keep telling myself that language matters um, because the language and the rhetoric is what leads the way in how to treat others. Um, and how to view others. And so um, with this book, it kind of confirmed that, that, you know, if you were to describe someone else as as the other and as a savage, um, or that if they were a problem or a nuisance, then it causes you to like react out of that fear. And so a lot of the interactions during that time was violence. And it was practiced by, you know, the the settlers, as well as native tribes, as well as, you know, New Mexicans, all those, you know, Mexican and Spaniard nations. And so it was, it kind of confirmed to me that violence is here and it's your choice whether you want to choose to live that way or not. Um, Because that, that, um, that when you do make that choice to live in violence, 
it really does um, affect the land and the rest of history. But then there were stories of of people like native tribes where they were um, very intentional about peacemaking. And then you see how it affected the rest of the land and how they interacted and stuff like that. And so that's kind of what rose out of the pages for me. Um, but it's it's also a good book to read for, you know, if anybody wants to know more about history. But, um, yeah. When you were growing <laughs> up in Zuni, did you, was it part of the history that you learned? Did you learn about violence in the land and... Um, violence towards towards or with your own people well with Zuni history um what for me I and I still have to kind of um ask the elders about this was the the influence of the Comanche um tribe and in the book it talks about how the Comanche tribe was just uh, a very powerful equestrian tribe um Sometimes they traveled in groups of 100 if they uh, were on horse and um, just how much pride they had in who they were. And and then in Zuni, um, we have songs that um, kind of uh, remember the Comanche or in Zuni we say Kumanche. But I still have yet to ask the elders like, you know, what type of influence they had on us or... You know, but there are songs that have kind of migrated down to us. Um, but the type of history that we have, you know, where the famed, I guess, um, story of the seven cities of gold with um, the conquistador Coronado, where he hmm. where he thought that there was this um, there was the city of gold, and so. Um, he traveled with his his military to to seek it out to see, seek out this famed city of gold, and um, come to find out, he came upon Zuni, and you know he didn't find gold, <laughs> but it was like the sun setting, and so upon the land and the gold colors that kind of reflected off of the land is kind of what made him believe that that was a city of gold, but. Um, hmm. I just remember uh, one of the stories of um, when a missionary was trying to come onto the land of Zuni. And during that time, there was a religious ceremony happening in Zuni. And so the the leaders, the elders went and they met with this missionary and told them, you are not going to cross this line because we are having our ceremonies right now. So you know, please be respectful and, and don't cross it right now. And so they did a line in the sand, yet the, the Spaniards and the um, missionaries, they crossed the line and they came into Zuni and, and then there was, you know, I'm sure there was violence, but there's just these stories of that. Um, and so I kind of, I carry those too. I carry those stories of how, you know, I'm a missionary. How do I come onto a land and um, one of the one of the best examples that I saw, um, and I got permission to share this from an elder, a Tlingit, a Tlingit elder um, from um, Juneau, Alaska, where we we saw these canoes coming onto the land. Um, the canoes 
come from different villages and then they make the week-long journey to um, to enter Juno. And, um, and these canoes um, attach themselves together and they start um, asking for permission from the elders on the land to place their feet onto the land and to come onto the land and get out of their canoes. And I thought that was like the perfect example of what it means to be respectful of the indigenous people or people who have been there before us to ask for permission. And then once you get that permission, then that's when you can cross, you know, get out of your canoe and then place your feet on the land. So it was just, yeah. So I think about stuff like that. Like how, how do I want to posture myself? How do I want to carry myself as I relate to other people, relate to other people that I'm um, serving with or partnering with to to do this mission work and understanding that missions isn't a a very lovely title for a lot of native peoples because they've been actually at the hands of being exterminated and being erased and being assimilated to like I said another sin sin stained culture and so <laughs> mm-hmm. I started learning a little bit about the history of the land that I live on in Oregon. Mm-hmm. I mean, we in Oregon, we grow up learning about Lewis and Clark and how they came out and looked for the Northwest Passage. And mm-hmm. they were kind of explorer heroes in our history. Um, last year, I read the book called Astoria. I don't know if you've heard of it, mm-hmm. but it's about it's a little bit about Lewis and Clark, but basically about settlers coming out to Oregon looking for the Northwest Passage, but also looking for beaver pelts because there was so much money to be made bringing beaver pelts back to New York and and Mm -hmm. selling them. So the fur trade, essentially. Yeah. But um, I, so I just saw a tiny bit in that book of the violence towards Native people that was involved in those expeditions. Mm -hmm. And I had never never heard about that before. Yeah. It was shocking. Yeah. So there's this whole, um, in history, movement of uh, the fur trappers coming in because they see it as an enterprise, like an economic enterprise to make money. And and then the natives see it too. And so they're trying to um, kind of uh, participate in that. But then um, the fur trappers kind of wipe out in mass numbers the beavers. And so it affects the land that, um, that the indigenous people are living on. And then when the, supply, su- when the supply goes up, the demand goes down. And so the, the money that the, the natives were relying on um, is no longer there because it's no longer a high demand Um, and so it just affects, you know, those types of interactions, I guess, affect, you know, villages and people groups and history and stuff like that. So it is good to just kind of dig more deeply into the narratives of not just the American history, but then to hear it from the indigenous worldview too. And, um, I mean, we're out there, natives are out there, um, we're still here. And so it's... Um, it's good to just kind of hear those stories. And a lot of Native people like to tell 
um, kind of our side of the story because it's it's much different from the American history worldview. Mm-hmm. So you've been talking about doing ministry mm-hmm. with other Native peoples. Mm-hmm. Is this with nations? Yeah. Um, so we, so Donnie and I, when we were college students at New Mexico State, um, the crew staff there just really loved us well and helped us build up our faith. And um, we were involved with Bible studies and the winter conferences and everything. All the all the crew hoops that are kind of given to college students, we've, we've jumped through them. <laughs> <laughs> you checked all the boxes. Um, Good job. And, um, and during a winter conference, I was, um, I was given a vision by the Lord of seeing all tribes, tons, and nations praising God on the mountaintop that, um, that I grew up near in Zuni, which is called the, um, Corn Mountain, Toyalani. And, um, I was standing on top of this mountain and I saw, just different tribes, tons, people, groups um, that I had never seen before, all praising God and glorifying His name. And I remember after seeing that vision, I kind of freaked out, didn't know what to think, but I shared it with my discipler, um, Kristen Carey. And she just asked me, okay, what do you want to do with this? What do you think it means? Um never taking it into her own hands or anything. And so I think that's the hard part of um, being on staff is that uh, learning how to kind of let go of that control of our students' faith. <laughs> um, she just she just asked me good questions. She just said, um, what do you think this means and what do you want to do with it? And I told her, I said, I think I, think I want to start a Bible study for now for Native students. And she said, okay, so what can I do to get you started or help you? And then, and so that was our sophomore year of New Mexico State, where Donnie and I started um, Nations, and um, and so now it's a national ministry. Um, but we've also had the opportunity and the blessing to partner with other Native ministries, um, you know, like Inner Varsity, um, Native IV, um, Mark Charles's ministry in Truth Telling. Um, Nates, uh, N-A-I-I-T-S, um, North American Indigenous Institute of Theological Studies. And, and those guys I, are like the theological um, heroes. Um, they went through all the hoops to, to really um, take with them their, their native worldview and to um, be able to start a theological program so that a lot of the classes that you take is based off of a native worldview. And so Donnie graduated from that program two years ago. And so, yeah, so we've had the opportunity to just partner with all these different native organizations, uh, native ministries, and it's been cool to partner with um, Native IV and with Mark Charles and the... um, uh, Calvin Institute of Worship to create this student ministry called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? And um, we invite all these Native young people, college students, um, for this for this conference where it's geared toward them. It's kind of a 
a space, a sacred space carved out for them to be able to wrestle with the question of like, can I be Native and Christian and how do I do it? So let's figure out how to do it. So it's, yeah, it's been pretty cool to partner with them and work with them on that. I love that God gave you a vision of yourself on Corn Mountain. Mm-hmm. Is our mountains holy places for the Zuni people like they are in the Bible and for a lot of other religions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a holy place. Yeah, it's a sacred, sacred spot for the mm-hmm. Zuni people. Renee, what has it been like to... I know you said initially when you started following Jesus, you felt like you had to just erase the part of you that was Zuni, mm-hmm. where you came from. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, did did people make you feel that way? Or wh- why do you think you felt that way? Um, I think I think somehow there's this... Um, like I said, all the way back to, you know, the Greek culture, the whole idea of the other, the savage, um, those types of things, those types of rhetoric or, you know, intentions get passed down through generations. Um, and so somehow, even though I came from a very proud background, there was still that, you know, that pervasive thought that like, I am the other and that, And it's still present with me even today where I see examples of just, yeah, they, they, we really were viewed as the Indian problem. And there's, there's these ways even today of how they're trying to erase our voice. Um, and so I see that play out even to this day. Um, and I'm trying to get back to your question about, um, if I if it was taught to me, I don't I don't know if it was directly taught to me. Um, but there's um, it's something to really discuss and kind of look into as Christians, you know, as the church to really um, if we really do want to invite all tribes, tons and nations. And if we really are about um, evangelism and exposing the gospel to all tribes, tons, and peoples, then it really means that we have to do the hard work of questioning our motives and questioning the the way we have done things, which means that how do we how do we view others? How do we deal with the fears that we have inside of us? Because it will come out. Um, and I think that's it's just been played out that way in native missions where um, a lot of churches have sadly co-opted the the government way of life or even just the um these policies made by the government or by the american worldview where it was like there's this indian problem and this is how we're going to erase them and then the way it played out was creating boarding schools to remove the native children from their homes so that they could eventually erase um, their identity by cutting their hair, um, exposing them to a different culture, which a lot of times was the church that would um, kind of put themselves in that position to help erase those things by cutting the st- cutting the the children's hair, um, taking away their native clothes, 
you know, their their traditional clothes, forbidding them to speak their own language, all those things. And so um, I think if we if we are really about um, seeing that all tribes, tons and nations are glorifying the father, then we we really need to have that hard discussion, the, the uncomfortable discussion of um, listening to each other's narratives and and lamenting in them, which is really hard to do because it's really uncomfortable to sit in somebody else's pain when you know that it's that it's something has a part of it has to do with you. And I, and I, I, you know, I know that I'm a missionary too. So I have part, you know, of that. I'm not taking on the responsibility of what's, you know, what was done to me, but there is that recognition of like, if I do come in the name of the father, then, then there, I am going to come into contact with people that are going to be in pain as a result of the church. And, and so how am I going to address that? How are we going to have that hard discussion of, um, being patient with one another and, and sharing each other's stories so that we can have that shared narrative and from that shared narrative, be able to carry each other's pain and learn how to, you know, walk in a way of, of being a peacemaker and reconciliation and all that stuff. So all those things that we want to quickly get to, but there's the hard, <laughs> hard work of really sitting in the pain first before we get to that. So, <laughs> mm. Do you live in Zuni now? No, um, I live about two hours away from Zuni. Uh, so I live in the city. I, I'm an urban Indian now. <laughs> Um, living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Zuni is probably about a two and a half hour drive west of me. Um, but we, we like to get back as often as we can. Yeah. What's it been like for your family and Zuni to have you be a Christian missionary? Mm, that, that one's sensitive. Um, it's really hard. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's it's been really difficult for me and my family. <clears throat> I mean, and I understand too because they raised me right. They raised me, um, you know, the best way they could to follow in a traditional way of living. Um, things that were passed down to us since time immemorial. I mean, centuries of of, you know, a religious way of life and, and I didn't follow in it and, um, or I didn't follow through in it, I guess, into my adult life. And that was really disappointing for my family, um, to kind of be in that very tense, um, position of being asked, you know, is there any way that I can follow the Zuni religious way of life and be a Christian at the same time. And, and right before that question came about, you know, I had read in, in the Bible that God wanted all of my heart, all of my mind, everything about me just for him. And, and I, I had to tell my family, no, like Christ calls and asks me to just be for him and to live for him. And, um, and I had to, you know, decline and say, like, I can't, I can't live with my heart 
divided to praying to Jesus and anything else. And so um, so that was really hard for me to do and to say. And at the same time, it was really hard for my family to hear. Um, and I'm sure it was very disappointing. Um, but we, you know, in, you know, after that kind of very uncomfortable conversation, there was, um, things started, you know, coming back together again where, you know, like, um, Donnie and I still take our girls to Zuni when they have the religious ceremonies. We don't participate in the religious stuff, but we do go to help with the cooking and um, exposing our girls to the cultural stuff like bread making, which I talk about in the poem is, you know, making the sourdough bread in the oven and just being there for my family and helping um, with cooking and getting things prepared for so that they can do what they're doing. And um, even in that, um, it's been really good to just kind of keep that relationship um, and to still grow together, um, even though it's been really hard. Um, but it's been cool to see that even though we go to help them um, with the cooking and interacting with them and stuff, that um, they observe us too. And so um, I've had really good conversations where my uncle just said, you know, um, it, it really pained me to hear of your decision to walk away from the Zuni religion. But he said, but I've been watching you. I've been watching the way you and Donnie treat each other and the way you guys treat your girls and the things that you guys have been doing with all your travels. And he said, and it caused me to open the Bible and read it for myself. And he said, I may not, he said, I may not even place my feet into the church, he said, because there's so much painful history with that. But he said, I see what you guys are doing. And I've read the words that are written in the Bible. And he said, I believe them. And I think that they're true. Um, but as far as placing my feet in the church, I don't know if I would do that. And so just having those types of conversations, being able to have those types of conversations have been really healing for me, even though it's been very difficult. Um, it feels um, in a lot of ways lonely sometimes. Um, yeah, um, but I've, I've seen my family really stand up for me when people have questioned kind of our... Um, evangelical, I guess, like practices. You know, we talk a lot about sharing painful history and boarding schools and stuff. And there have been people that have questioned us and they have, they have called us to say, you know, you should just concentrate on college students. Don't, you know, get over it, get over the history. You should forgive the past and then just move on, which is really insensitive to say. But um, our family has has really stood up for us, which is very ironic, you know, for for people who, you know, are labeled as non-believers or people who are labeled as something else. Like they're actually the ones who have stood up for us the most to say, leave them alone because what they're doing is good. So, yeah. So that's, I think that's been 
very healing for me, but then also very hard to, to try to kind of balance and hold together. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, Renee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if you, do you have your I Am poem somewhere where you could read it to us? Oh yeah, I can find it. So um, one of the requests that I always get is um, staff people or even just people in different ministries asking about how to do this exercise. And you can find it on our website. It's called um, thetalkingcircle.com. It's like a template? Yeah, it's a template on how to do the exercise. And then um, I think we have the link of that the talk that we're talking about where I spoke at the staff conference. Oh. Yeah. There's a YouTube link on there, so you can watch the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Oh, great. Okay, we'll put all that in the show notes. Okay. So you want me to begin now? (laughs) Yes, please. I Am From by Renee Begay. I am from the deep red mesas of the desert. I am from the canvas skies of orange, blue, and red. I am from the smell of clay and juniper after rainstorms. I am from ancient people. I am from the sandhill crane, and from the eagle, I am from people of artists, creating out of turquoise stone, silver and clay. I am from precious, beautiful people. I am from spiritual, prayerful people who are fighting to keep their traditions alive. I am from the smell of sourdough bread, fresh from the outdoor adobe oven. I am from the laughter and stories around the feasting table. I am from Zuni. I am from a mother who is still hopeful, searching for unfailing love. I am from a father who just couldn't stay, but had to see the world. I am from the protection and the presence of the one true creator. I am from a painful life rescued by Jesus Christ. I am from the image of God. I am from his thoughts, from his plans. I am from a faithful God whose love never fails. I am from the revealer of mysteries. I am from a God who searches the hearts of all. I am from the desire to be a tree deeply rooted to the living water. I am from a covenant to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength.